Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life and Educational Offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And we're going to begin today with a prayer request. <laughs> Just a few of us have a prayer request. The real Astros fans have a prayer request. Okay. Yeah. You know what to do. <laughs> bang Circle on the some wagons, bar- Bang on some garbage cans. Circle the wagons. Circle Hang on some trash, and, trash cans while you're at it. I'm just so you kidding. have some other announcements. I do, actually. Um, one is that the Ordinary Women are holding their first in-person meeting this Thursday at noon in room 312. I think that's all to that one. Uh, there will be access that is not stair. In other words, you can take the elevator or the stairs. So if stairs are a problem, please still come. <laughs> that's what the email says. Um, Helen Spall will be there doing uh, a demonstration of healing circles, too. So she's wonderful at that. And then the other announcement is about Advent kits that are able to be signed up for. I think we should include the link in the, in the summary of the class. Okay. Yeah. That's your job. I'll announce it. You, you include the link. So you can start picking up Advent kits November 14th. I can't believe we're almost in November. Is that shocking to anyone else that time keeps going on? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It is to me sometimes. And then the green team update says that we are um, offering reusable mugs and water cups instead of single-use products. So you can bring your own reusable things like this and fill it up downstairs. I think they're just trying to minimize trash and keep things as litter-free as possible. I can respect that. Mm -hmm. I think it's great. That's it. What about money? We have money. And, <laughs> um, and one of the things that we do, as you all might remember, is uh, give away money towards the end of the year. We've been giving it away throughout the entire year, which has been wonderful. And thank you, because this is such a generous group. Um, I don't know the amount. We'll be able to report that next week. But we have money to give away this at the end of this year, too. So if you are involved in a nonprofit, a project that you really care about, it has to be a 501c3. That's the only recommendation or requirement. Um, please submit that to, it would actually be to Marcy this year. It's not, you can hand it to me and I'll just give it to Marcy. Um, we'll include her email as well as the form and the summary as well. But if there are things that you care about that you'd love to see a little bit of money go to, then please start thinking about that now. We usually close that deadline right after Thanksgiving and then meet to talk about We've been doing it online the last couple of years, just meeting. COVID has forced that. Helene is on the um, uh, finance committee, so she makes all the decisions. <laughs> I, I think that with one exception, yeah. and that was when we were doing medical work in Bolivia, or uh, was that with the AIDS work? And we needed money for a medical clinic. We've never asked for money in this class. And you all are so generous. I know. Yeah. And um, I want to just underline what Holly said. We give away every penny we have to nonprofit organizations. It all goes to really worthy causes. And this past 18 months, we've had a kind of different giving because of COVID and needs in our own community and that sort of thing. So if you do that, that would be helpful. Anything else? That's it, I think. So thanks to John and Richard and William and um, Wayne and everybody else who makes this happen. Um, let's begin with um, 
some silence. And um, our prayer is always to and from sacred mystery, these words. We offer ourselves to you to build with us and do with us as you please. Relieve us of bondage to the ego so that we may better grow into our true selves. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you, you are, are welcome, welcome here. here. So I want to start today uh, by showing you some images. They're not pleasant, but they uh, are what came to me uh, and, and to Holly. I think this is my idea when we first um, looked at the text uh, that we're looking at today. Everybody knows this one. Remember where you were? Tuesday morning. How about this image? Everybody knows that. This is actually the first image that I thought about. Remember that? Mm -hmm. uh, there's an interesting story online about this young man. He was very upset that his, uh, this photograph went uh, viral because he didn't want to be known uh, as a white supremacist, but that's why he went to Charlottesville. You're going to wonder. So uh, today we're going to talk about anger and rage. And um, using anger and rage as a spiritual tool and we're doing this because we're using John Sanford's commentary as one of our guides on our journey through the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and in John, what follows the story of turning water into wine is Jesus and his disciples going into the temple in Jerusalem where Jesus gets angry at the money changers in the temple and he causes a disruptive scene. Sanford calls his commentary on this the psychology of anger, the cleansing of the temple. So I want to read to you the text from John as rendered by Eugene Peterson, um, and then um, we'll talk about what this text means. When the Passover feast celebrated each spring by the Jews was about to take place, Jesus traveled up to Jerusalem. He found the temple teeming with people selling cattle and sheep and doves. The long sharks were also there in full strength. Jesus put together a whip out of strips of leather and chased them out of the temple, stampeding the sheep and cattle, upending the tables of the lone sharks, spilling coins left and right. He told the dove merchants, get your things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. That's when his disciples remembered the scripture, 
Zeal for your house consumes me. But the Jews were upset. They asked, what credentials can you present to justify this? Jesus answered, tear down this temple and in three days I'll put it back together. They were indignant. It took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to rebuild it in three days? But Jesus was talking about his body as the temple. Later, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he said. They put two and two together and believed both what was written in the scripture and what Jesus had said. During the time he was in Jerusalem, those days of the Passover feast, Many people noticed the signs he was displaying, and seeing, they pointed straight to God and trusted their lives to him. But Jesus didn't entrust his life to them. He knew them inside and out, knew how untrustworthy they were. He didn't need any help in seeing right through them. So we are calling these reflections on this particular passage Anger and rage finding wisdom for the cooling of the flames. Hmm. So I think any of us who are in a body know that anger is inevitable. It's part of being human. And our, our culture, as seen by the images that Bill showed, has a pretty unhealthy relationship to anger. We don't often distinguish very well between justifiable anger and unjustifiable anger. And I think for many of us, anger is scary and harmful. It can trigger feelings of fear in us. I hope that understanding the different types of anger can help us to maybe have a different relationship to it. There are certain ways that anger can also be channeled into meaningful action. Some of my heroes have channeled anger into meaningful action. In Mystical Christianities, Sanford writes about four Greek words for different types of anger. I am positive that if you are fluent in Greek in this class that I will get the pronunciation of these words somewhat wrong. So please be gentle with me. Um, <laughs> maybe you can help me if you speak Greek fluently. But the first type of anger is called parorgismos, which is excited anger or provoked anger. Its intent is to destroy the person who has exposed often something hidden in us, uh, a weakness or a malintent. We, we know these kinds of people about whom we might be cautioned, don't poke that bear, right? I think of this as explosive anger that often is from a wounded but very prideful place. I think of this as the rageful parent who might not have dealt with their own complexes or childhood wounds and so transmits that rage onto the child. You, you've seen that sort of like the, the parent rages at the child, the child rages at the dog. Who does the dog rage at, right? You know, it's, whew. But this person who is full of this kind of anger often demands adoration and respect, but does not often offer it unconditionally because of those wounds. The second kind of anger is diaprio. It means to divide with a saw, and I like this definition, to grate one's teeth in a rage. It's evoked when we're told things we don't want to hear, perhaps that need to be heard, like, sister, you got to deal with these issues, <laughs> but they're really painful to confront. This is like classic evil villain stuff, and I know I'm not going to be in my youngest son's good graces when I get home because he loves Darth Vader. 
Um, <laughs> but my, his, Darth Vader was Anakin Skywalker before he became the evilest of all evils. And he was full of this kind of anger, Diaprio. He, he had a mentor or friend named Obi-Wan Kenobi. And at some point, Obi-Wan Kenobi points out to him, you know, Anakin, you've got to deal with this rage. You're, you're leaning more and more towards your dark side. I'll say that all of us have a dark and a light side. And it's always about which one we choose in any given circumstance. But Anakin doesn't take that advice very well. He's like, I'll show you. And if you're not my friend, you're my enemy, and I'll destroy you. So he goes on. You know, this stuff is real, but Star Wars, right? He goes on single-handedly to destroy several galaxies and planets and all of its inhabitants. Darth Vader was angry, and he wouldn't face it. The third kind of anger is thymos. This actually relates to the thymus gland, which is at the base of our neck. It's a strong passion or an emotion of the mind. It's interesting to note that thymos also means soul or spiritedness. The soul is the seat of anger, but it is also the seat of spirit and courage. This kind of anger, when it's rooted in passion, can fuel systemic change, but it can also fuel crimes of passion. Bill pointed out to me this week while we were kind of meandering through our podcast that I would probably kill for my children. He's probably right. <laughs> if you're a mother or father and you're like, yeah, I probably have. No, I'm just kidding. Um, as, as in this, so this is not about egocentricity. This is not about how my heart is wounded. This is about kind of a fierce protection, thymos anger. But it's res a response to something that is deep within us. Sometimes it can start out as healthy anger that goes too far. Samford writes about healthy anger. There is such a thing as healthy anger. It is described as a healthy response to an intolerable situation. So thymos anger can lead us there. I think of um, civil rights movement leaders and Black Lives Matter movements as healthy responses to intolerable situations. They're fueled by a desire for change, for justice, for equality, and for a deep love for people. Healthy anger needs a touch of thymos. However, thymos without a developed consciousness, without, um, without some moral development, relishes vengeance. Has anyone in here watched The Handmaid's Tale all the way through? It's dark, and I don't know if I totally recommend it. But the main character, June, she's motivated to take down this oppressive system because of her love for her daughter, ultimately. But she ultimately becomes like that which she is also against. It's said that whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, she or he does not become a monster. The Greek god of war, Ares, was a bit of a monster. He would come in, guns blazing, and event evidently lost a bunch of battles. But his counterpart, Athena, was a little bit more cool-headed. It is said that she fought only when necessary and as a defensive option. Thymos combined with this fourth type of anger, which is pronounced orgy, I, I, it must have some origins in, in the same word, is, is, is able to channel anger in productive ways that shifts systems. So thymos combined with orgy anger is like passionate anger with a moral compass. Make sense? So this word is often used to describe the type of anger that Jesus felt 
It means the settled purpose of wrath. It's an instrument through which oppression and evil is destroyed. I think of it kind of like ordered chaos. It's purposeful, it's channeled, it's intentional. It destroys, but it's not just focused on destruction. It's also focused on creating something new. It's not egocentric, but it proceeds from this deepest part of the self that deeply loves justice. So instead of killing for my children, as Bill suggested, I might fight to keep books in libraries that have them represented as main characters. I might fight not to invisible away the experiences of other children who don't, be see or who don't feel seen. Or I might fight to have reasonable gun control laws so that we can feel safe in communities and in schools. In this temple scene, Jesus was angry at the exploitation of the poor, the overcharging for the small trinkets of offerings that were being sold outside of the temple. He was angry at the priests for being complicit with this behavior and benefiting from it. The priests were becoming very wealthy off of the poor. We know some churches like that. So how can we understand this behavior also knowing what we know about Jesus's commitment to nonviolence. How can we understand that he took up a whip? And while there's no evidence that he struck a person or an animal, it's definitely a symbol of authority. He commanded a presence in this story. I believe that the best leaders are so often soft and strong. They're able to stand up to the powers that be while also empowering the least of these. And I think this is what Jesus is doing. So one of the things that lets us know that the Gospel of John is different than Mark, Luke, Matthew, uh, that it has a different thrust, uh, is that this event, commonly referred to as the cleansing of the temple, is at the end of those three Gospels and is seen as the straw that broke the camel's back that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. In John, the cleansing of the temple comes very, very early. Now, commentators have been divided. Those who uh, claim the historicity of this event say that there were two cleansings of the temple. Um, Sanford and certainly Spong and many other commentators say it may never have happened. And um, in, the, in the beginning of his commentary, Sanford never mentions the cleansing of the temple. Uh, and, and Spong thinks it probably didn't occur. If there was an altercation, it did not occur in the temple proper because no merchants could have been allowed in the temple. So this was, uh, this was in the temple courtyard, if it occurred. And as I said, the temple courtyard is as big as five football fields. So an encounter between a person and a table of money changers probably would not have drawn that kind of attention. At the Passover, this place would have been packed with merchants selling all sorts of things to those who had come for the festival. There would have been food. There would have been other wares sold. And since only Jewish coins could be used in the temple, other currencies would need to be exchanged for them. And further, 
since only unblemished animals could be offered as a sacrifice, you wouldn't want to risk taking an animal on a, say, a five to seven day journey to Jerusalem and risk something happening to it, and then it wouldn't be capable of being offered for sacrifice. So the animals were there. It all made sense. It's something that had been going on for hundreds of years. Um, so it was common for these livestock to be available. And um, on top of all this, it was not the money exchange or the selling of livestock that angered Jesus. It was something else. When Jesus went to the temple, he was not rejecting temple worship. He was rejecting the notion and the practice that had made those in charge a place, it had made the temple a place where people could be excluded and judged. So the message of Jesus is all about forgiveness and inclusion. Now, if you've heard this story before, and I imagine most of you have, you likely remember Jesus saying, you have made of my father's house a den of thieves. It was not that robbery was taking place in the temple. It was rather that the temple had become a place where robbers hung out. And that's what upset him. What was being stolen was the land, the resources, pushing more and more people to the bottom of the economic heap. Jesus was being critical, just had been the prophets before him that the religious leaders were using their religion to sidestep what God really wanted, which was justice toward the powerless. So, just to be clear, the anger or rage that Jesus demonstrates in cleansing the temple is very different from the anger and rage we saw in the images that uh, I showed a few minutes ago. For example, there was intense rage behind the attacks on the Twin Towers. People don't plot and plan and mobilize for an event like that without being inflamed. When he was asked how he would have dealt with the 9-11 event, Thich Nhat Hanh said, I would get everybody involved in this event in a room, and I would have them spend a long time in silence. And then I would ask the perpetrators, what have we done? to make you so angry, and I would try to listen. Now, road rage, which is increasing, I don't know if you ever experience it. It's because people don't use huh? their blinkers. What? It's because people don't use their blinkers. I Yes, people don't use their blinkers and their turn signals, and I, can't, I keep thinking what a shame it is to spend 30, 40, 50, 60,000 dollars on a car <laughs> And then get it home and realize the turn signals don't work. That must be very disappointing. I tell you, everyone in here thinks of you when they use their turn signals. <laughs> That's what I will be remembered for. Road rage is an, it, it, it reflects an inability of a person to self-soothe and not to handle anger in the way that Thich Nhat Hanh suggests handling anger, like anger is a, a baby that's upset and you don't punish the baby for being upset. Mm -hmm. You check to see what's going on with the infant and then do what you can to calm it down. 
So I want us to reflect on two kinds of anger and rage. First, there is the rage reflected on the face of the white supremacist in, in Charlottesville. And this kind of rage is the result of the visceral politics of fear that dominates much of our current discourse. Rage of this sort historically involves a privileged group lashing out against what they see as a threat to their privileged position. So I want to say that we have only two ways of living our lives in the world. Either we live proactively, and hopefully if we live proactively, we do so out of a set of values, peace, <clears throat> love, joy, patience, humility. That's one choice. The other choice that is that we can live reactively. We can live out of fear or hurt. And this is the rage seen in Charlottesville. It's the rage seen on January 6th. Um, <clears throat> people who are raging see threats to their way of life that they want to stop. They may be out of control, but given their worldview and their value system, they're acting on what makes sense to them at the time, okay? I think <clears throat> that embracing the truth of um, evolutionary cosmology is one of the anecdotes to this. Change happens, change is coming, we can welcome it, we can be with it. The violence that this rage engenders is explicit and it's dangerous and it's growing in our culture. There is a violence that is carried out with a velvet glove. It's not explicit. It's in the laws and the rules embedded in the white supremacist systems and structures. And it was in response to this kind of structural violence that H. Rep. Brown, <clears throat> I don't know if many of you remember him. You remember H. Rep. Brown in the 60s? And for those of you who were not in the 60s, the 60s were also tumultuous times, mm -hmm. very tumultuous times. But it's what caused H. Rep. Brown to say, violence <clears throat> is American as cherry pie. And a lot of people took exception to that. I remember my parents did. Mm -hmm. um, just as a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people said in response to January 6th, this is not who we are. The fact is, it is who we are. Not all of us, but it's who a, a huge hunk of us is. And um, maybe from the beginning of the country, that's been true. Probably getting it longer ago than that. <coughs> yeah. A lot of what you're saying right now makes me think of the connection between <coughs> fear, anger, and courage. It's fear feeds anger, right? But if we can transform anger, anger can also lead to courage. It can ignite and it can change things. St. Augustine once said, Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain the way that they are. I also think of James Baldwin, one of my favorites. 
to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. There are things we should be angry about. And James Baldwin is one of the most courageous writers I know. When I searched this photo of him, it was, I couldn't help but choose the one that had another quote that says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense that once the hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with the pain. I don't think we can feel anger without also touching pain. What hurts us? I think you thought of Ruby Sales this week. Where does it hurt? I can imagine that anyone who has ever been involved in fighting for justice is motivated in part by anger. I know I spent most of 2020 cycling between anger, despair, and motivation to change things after the murder of George Floyd. All three of these emotions came from an intense love for my children, for my husband, for wanting a world where they can breathe, where they can feel seen and safe and completely at ease in their bodies without somebody else's fear being thrust upon them. I have a fierce love for these men <laughs> and young boys. My boys' spirits do not need to be tamped down by somebody else's fear. They, like everyone, just want to be free. I think we're more likely to erupt in anger when we don't have that sense of freedom or a sense of fairness or when we feel threatened, something in us feels threatened. Um, my youngest has is has such a justice-oriented bone in his body. Like, he just will fight everything to the bone. And he's going to make a great lawyer someday, but his sense of, like, what is fair and not fair is very strong. And the trick, of course, is to learn the difference between a real threat to our personhood, who are we in the world, and a threat to our ego. Little kids don't know that as well, but a threat to our ego results in explosive or reactive anger. Threats to our personhood can lead to productive expressions of anger. I was reading, of course, about Martin Luther King this week and how he often dealt with anger and how it impacted him. He, even though he led a movement in nonviolence, he was not immune from feeling rage at times. And as tensions built with, and the movement was closer and closer to actual policy change, as his life was more threatened, I mean, he was receiving threats all the time. He sometimes swung between outrage and depression. There's a story that um, there was a point where this outrage was so strong that he had actually a physical altercation with one of his close colleagues and, and pushed them. So here's this man that we think of as being the epitome of nonviolence, but he also dealt with a kind of rage. It's also commonly said that depression is anger toward turned inward. These are examples of reactive anger that didn't have an outlet. And we're all caught by that in some moments in our life. The people that he took his anger out on, himself and a colleague, were not deserving of his rage. In the 30 hours before he was shot on April 4th, his plane to Memphis had received a bomb threat and it was deplaned. And, it caused, and it was, it, the bomb threat was because of the knowledge that he and his colleagues were on the plane. So they had to be escorted to safety for several hours. The plane eventually took off. His inner, inner circle noted that day of his exhaustion and fatigue. And the night before he died was when he gave his mountaintop speech, which has become one of the most famous speeches of his career. He sensed in some way his pending death. He knew in some way what was coming. Here are a few stanzas from that speech, his last one. 
The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. Confusion is all around. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men, in some strange way, are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. And wherever they are assembled today, wherever they are, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace, but now no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer a choice between violence and nonviolence in this world. It's nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today. I think what I want to impress upon us is that even though we have this really neat and tidy image of a nonviolent king, very much like we have a very neat and tidy image of a nonviolent Jesus, they were both very angry about injustice. And both of them were activated by that anger. I bet they were also exhausted by it. Imagine what we could do with all of that energy that could be channeled, that is channeled towards fighting injustice. If there was none, we could have all these creative and, and wonderful, I think King would still be alive if it weren't injustice he were fighting, but creativity that he was producing. Imagine a world in which we're primed rather than prevented to show up as our best selves. I think mostly Martin Luther King's energy got channeled into the movement of nonviolence, and he was part of training hundreds of activists in this spiritual practice. But he was also fueled by a fierce love. I think of this as holy anger. This is what I think of as productive anger. It's fully justified, and it got channeled into changing things that he was actually angry about, unjust systems, laws, and behaviors. This is how he cleanse the temple. So I think the question that I sit with is, what is worthy of our anger and what isn't? And how do we manage it? So I want to suggest uh, that you write this down and take it home and put it on your refrigerator. No. <laughs> it's a Zen saying. The most dangerous thing in the world is to think you understand something. So that's a seed I want to plant. Uh, I've got another one I want to <laughs> plant, too, in a minute. I, I just finished reading a really wonderful little book. Uh, you can't get it at a bookstore, but you can get it off of Brian McLaren's website, and it's called Why Don't They Get It? And it's about the ten kinds of biases each and every one of us, including your teachers, is affected by that so easily keeps us from seeing what is. Remember, seeing what is is the essence and content of spiritual practice. Okay? Now, I'm not going into these, but yes. Bill, could you give me the name of the author again? Yeah. Brian McLaren. I read a book of his called Faith After Doubt, and that is what got me onto the website, his website, where you can actually buy two little e-books. One is called Why Don't They Get It?, which is about the biases that I'm talking about. There are 10 of them that he uh, lists. And the second book he calls The Second Pandemic, 
You know what the second pandemic is? Authoritarianism coming in this country. It's a pandemic. We need to be equipped to deal with. That's not what this class is about today. We'll get there maybe, but I did want to reference it. Um, I, I, what I want to say today is that we all have these biases. There's not a person who is I exempt from having them. Yeah. And a bias that I have is that I don't have them. <laughs> we should talk. Uh, <laughs> That leads me that leads me to the other saying that's worth putting on the refrigerator, and it's by Desmond Tutu. If you're neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. So Jesus was biased, just as were the Hebrew prophets. They got angry, and so did he. They didn't get angry at some jerk who cut them off on the freeway. They got angry at those who claimed to be religious, but who were, in fact, not following the laws given to them in their tradition. There is no way for us to really know what happened in the temple. Did it happen at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? Did it happen at the end of Jesus' ministry? It makes sense to me to say that something like that happened. I doubt it stirred up the kind of response any of the Gospels present. Jesus encounters the table of money changers in a space, as I said, as big as five football fields. As one of my seminary professors put this episode, he said, it was a fly on a cow's rump. Irritating, but no big deal. So the writers of the Jesus narrative use it to make a point. And the point is that Jesus gave his life to realizing a community of empowerment, which was his vision of a better world where oppressive systems are destroyed and where every person's dignity and worth is recognized and respected. Now, the phrase for this behavior by the biblical scholars is um, prophetic rage. Prophetic rage is the energy these people used to make the community of empowerment a reality. Now, we talked last week about creative maladjustment, a phrase I got from Martin Luther King, Jr. To aid in bringing about the community of empowerment, one must be maladjusted to the current world we inhabit. And please keep in mind, that prophetic rage can never be separated from love. Mm. Jesus' rage was loving because it worked to create a new situation where people no longer were subjected to the forces of domination. And further, where the hearts of the oppressors were no longer maimed through their endorsement of oppression. I think this may be the main message that our demographic needs to hear. Do I need to repeat that? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus was angry at those forces that caused people to experience domination. But further, he wanted the hearts of those who were oppressed, who were the oppressors, no longer maimed, hurt, through their endorsement of oppressive systems. 
we live in a place where I remember uh, Jane Nelson's line to a collection of white folks when she asked, she's my age, actually I think she's a little older than me, how many of you would be willing to be treated as black people are treated in this society? Hold up your hand. And nobody's hand went up. She said, maybe you didn't understand me. She repeated it. How many of you would be treated, willing to be treated as black people? To treat? And nobody's hand went up and she said, that means you know what's going on. That's what Jesus meant by not wanting to maim the heart of those who were the oppressors. Mm. Okay. And I'm not biased. <laughs> Done with your question. Clear-headed. Yeah. <laughs> so Thich Nhat Hanh, who's such an amazing spiritual teacher, writes that anger gets out of balance when love is also out of balance. There is such a very thin line between fear and anger and anger and love. We don't feel angry about something we don't also love, right? And Thich Nhat Hanh cautions us to go back to the inner child inside of each of us, to talk to her, to embrace her, to recognize her presence and heal her wounds so that anger doesn't get out of love. Sorry, anger doesn't get out of balance. When I was a child, <laughs> Maybe I was nine or ten. I know I was in um, the third grade. My best friend's little brother was being treated for cancer. He had had one kidney removed, and because of chemo and radiation, he was in first grade at the time, he had lost all of his hair. And I grew up in Westview, and one day I was at the <laughs> Westview Little League field where I spent a lot of time. This is my I love baseball. Um, another little boy was on a bike, and he was teasing my friend's little brother for having no hair. This little boy was like a brother to me. I loved him so much. And I was enraged at the boy on the bike. I stomped over to him and I pushed him off his bike and I just started pummeling him. <laughs> you want me on your team. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that my scrawny little arms didn't do much damage, but that was me acting from Thymos anger. It wasn't about me, it was about a passion I had for this little boy that I loved, but I didn't have the consciousness to transform it into orgy anger at the time. Today, it wouldn't work if I pushed a little boy off his bike. I would be arrested. <laughs> but I was so sure at the time that I was doing the right thing. I was so sure that I was vindicated because of how much I loved this little boy. As a counselor in schools, I did a lot of professional development on bullying. And later I would learn that one of the most important and effective ways to respond to a bully was to say loudly and firmly in front of everyone, what you are doing is not okay. It brought attention to the bully's behavior, not to the kid being bullied who was already feeling small and embarrassed. I've had to say this a lot of times to middle school students, that's for whom I was a counselor. And I've even had to say it to some grown-ups who were acting like middle school students. What you are doing is not okay. Very often the bullies would end up in my office too. And what I saw, and this is what Jesus teaches us, is that they were so hurt. The bullies were hurting. And Jesus is able to say, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. And one of the things that I've learned about studying Buddhism is that forgiveness is not the same as acceptance. We don't have to accept the behavior in order to forgive it, in order to try to love someone into their best selves. I think one of the things that's important is taking care of ourselves so that our anger at all of that is not, all that is not right in the world does not get turned inward, does not turn into depression or get turned into self-harm. We don't want to become the monsters. There's a Buddhist story that I came across that um, teaches us one way to talk to our anger, ours and other people's. It invites us to build our personal power, especially in the face of toxic people and toxic systems, what some people might call energy thieves, those who kind of suck the energy out of the room. But here's the story. After many days of travel, Buddha arrived at a small town to give a speech. Everyone was happy to see him except for one young man. While Buddha spoke, the man was shouting at him. That's what you see in the picture. Buddha did not pay attention and continued speaking. This infuriated the man. He walked directly in front of the Buddha and continued to ridicule him. You have no right to teach others. You are stupid and you're a fake. The crowd began to react to this young man's caustic behavior. The Buddha stopped the crowd from turning against him and said, it is not always necessary to counter aggression with more aggression. Instead, he turned to the man and asked, if you buy a gift for someone and that person doesn't take it, to whom does the gift belong? The young man was surprised by this question, thought for a moment and answered, it would belong to me because I bought the gift. And the Buddha says, correct. It's the same with your anger. If you become angry with me and I do not feel insulted or accept your hostility, the anger falls back on you. It was initially yours to give. You are then the only one who becomes unhappy, not me. All you've done is hurt yourself. The young man understood, clasped his hands, and slowly bowed to the Buddha. He had learned a valuable lesson that day. And so the Buddha concludes in the public, as a mirror reflects an object, as a still lake reflects the sky, take care that what you speak or act is for good. For goodness will always cast back goodness, and harm will always cast back harm. Similarly, I think if we channel our anger about things that are good, like fighting injustice, poverty, and racism, into productive, creative, community-building work, that goodness will eventually change the world just enough to start to tip it. So um, one of the things that I want to say is that um, when I left clinical training to go into private practice, one of the three things that surprised me that no amount of my training had equipped me to deal with was the amount and degree of abuse that exists in the American family. It's astounding. And that it is in the family is statistically understandable because that's where we spend most of our time. But that there is so much of it is just absolutely stunning. Mm -hmm. So, and I'll get, I'm gonna circle back to this before we're done today. I just wanna tattoo the end of this class. You know what we talked about last week? Water into wine. 
transforming something, taking something in and transforming it so that it cleanses us from the inside out, right? So you have that story, and then you got this story. They're bookends. You've got transformation, and then you've got this issue of anger. And the message that Holly has just been telling us is, what we don't transform, we transmit. And that's something that each of us can pay attention to in the places where we live out our lives. Jesus was a Jewish mystic. He loved his Judaism. He loved his religion. He wanted to reform it. And if you read the prophetic tradition, I'm talking about now specifically Jeremiah, parts of Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, um, you will read that it is not that they thought God wanted worship and justice. As they understood their law, God wanted justice over worship. Their theology, if you will, was that God is just and that the world belongs to God. Therefore, worship cannot be separated from justice because worship or union with a God of justice empowers the worshiper for a life of justice. So Jeremiah said to the religious, to the people of his day, you know what, if you keep this up, this temple is going to be destroyed. So when the writer of John has Jesus say this, he's quoting Jeremiah. Jesus' criticism, as I said, was not so much of what was going on in the temple courtyard. That had been going on for hundreds of years. His criticism was that they were not that they were using their religion to sidestep the demands of God for justice. Frederick Beatner, one of my favorite writers, says of anger, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. <laughs> to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is you. The skeleton at the feast is you. I'm thinking about how many times, I don't know if I'm alone in this, stood in front of a mirror and like just had a monologue with the person that I want to just. <laughs> I've never, I I, I've never done anything you know, like that. Ever? I got issues. <laughs> I'm, I'm hunching that we've all done that. Yeah. We've all done that. So if we have in our hearts those poisons of anger, despair, jealousy, delusion, as delicious as they are, we can't be happy. We cannot live out the values of peace, love, joy, patience, and humility if we have those in our heart. Spiritual work is about transforming this. And, and when anger is present, to use it for justice and not for harm, not for revenge. So as I said, the Gospel of John starts with the miracle of transformation. 
and that moves directly to the theme of justice. And if we put the two together, the message is we can take into ourselves the external rules and regulations and transform them into the energies needed to change our lives and then we can bring enlarged living into the world. Now, as we go forward through the Gospel of John, we're going to see that Jesus was not loyal to one religion, to this group or that, to those who consider themselves worthy or not. Jesus is loyal to suffering, mm. to all suffering. I've already thought that how I want to begin next Sunday mm -hmm. is with that sign that you see held up at football games. You know what it says? John 3.16? That's in the Nicodemus story. Mm -hmm. How in the world did we get from a gospel of good news about enlarged life and living and personal responsibility to that? Football game proselytizing. Football game theology. <laughs> do they do it at baseball games? No. <laughs> Are you claiming some sort of superiority for... I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> so I, I hope you're seeing why I wanted to do this deep dive into John. If we stay with the story, open our hearts and minds. Jesus, according to John, or Jesus, wants to grab all of our self-created boundaries away from us, leaving us absolutely nothing to hold on to. Hmm. So that all we have left is a free fall into the arms of sacred mystery. Hmm. That's our only solid security. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step, and we will see you here next week. Thank you. Thank you.